Welcome to the arena, where sometimes the hardest part is showing up. My name is Linda McLaughlin. Thank you for being here. Ed Cressy is a published writer and public speaker. He's an active volunteer for organizations that deliver training in entrepreneurism, employment, and personal development to people who are or were incarcerated. He is one of the FBI's Community Leadership Award recipients. He is also a recovering meth addict who at one time lost it all numerous times. Now he walks the path of recovery and redemption. Thank you for listening. This is episode seven. Ed, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me and to share your story with with our listeners. It is my pleasure to be here, Linda. Thank you so much for having me. We met through the Akimbo workshops. I learned you had a book and I have to say it was pretty profound, but I won't preempt it in any way. I wanted you to have the opportunity to share with us the moments that you feel are the most salient and any sort of lessons learned that you can share would be wonderful. Absolutely. It's great to be here and for your audience. I'm probably (laughs) the only person ever who was once arrested by the FBI, then recognized with the Community Service Award by the FBI director. (laughs) Uh, I'm so grateful to God, to the FBI, and to amazing, incredible people in my life, such as you, Linda, and such as Seth Godin, who helped me overcome 20 devastating years of addiction to alcohol, cocaine, and finally methamphetamine for the final 11 years of my addiction. I hurt myself. I hurt the people around me just as much, if not more. I sank from a relatively privileged life of idyllic childhood, college education, career with Genentech. They were a biotech firm. They treated me very well for the five years I was there. Thanks to help from others, I had the opportunity to be an amateur kickboxer. I owned a home in San Francisco. I had a beautiful dog. Linda, I could go on and on about the incredible blessings that life brought me. All along, I was a person addicted to drugs. I harbored deep resentments towards myself for a number of reasons. Chief among those reasons, I resented myself because I never pursued my childhood dream of becoming a writer. Never did that. Instead, I pursued material things. Nothing wrong with material things, yet I I found through very hard experience and tough lessons that material things, as great as they may be, do not substitute for achieving one's dream. In the year 2007, I had taken all those things, a home, the beloved dog, the uh, motorcycle, my Jeep. I took all of it and put it in a glass pipe and smoked it away. I was living in a flophouse hotel with a little sink in the corner of my room. In that sink, I would ash my cigarettes. I would wash my clothes. I would urinate. This was my life. I hadn't showered or brushed my teeth in months. I would shamble the sidewalks and lurk in doorways engaged in screaming matches with people who weren't even there because I was in methamphetamine psychosis. I heard disembodied voices claiming to be the work of of an FBI conspiracy that had enrolled all my family and friends and former employees in a plot to pin 9-11 on me because I'd inadvertently befriended a 9-11 hijacker. I'd thrown away my life savings and was cheating welfare. 
I take food stamps and traded them and, and bought steaks at the supermarket, traded the steaks to my drug dealer for meth. These are the depths to which I sank. 13 years ago yesterday, I found the strength to get clean for good. Incredible people inspired me along a path of community service, of spirituality, of self-improvement. That's how eventually I ended up going from immersed in deep, detailed conspiracy theories around the FBI to shaking hands with the director of the FBI, receiving a community service award. I'm so grateful to the FBI because they recognize my work with persons who are or were incarcerated and turning their lives around through employment and entrepreneurism. The FBI recognized my work with others who struggle with addiction the way I struggled. So many individuals and organizations along my path helped me. I think my story above all proves that second chances benefit receivers, people like me. Yes, we benefit. Yet second chances benefit the givers just as much, if not more so. Point being, society gave me a second chance, and I'm fortunate to be able to use that second chance to do something to help society. I want to just take you back a minute. Where did it start? What did your childhood look like? I grew up in the verdant woods of Massachusetts, had so much provided to me. And this is one of the most important transformations in my life. I came to realize that society gave me unfair advantages because of, let's face it, the color of my skin. My socioeconomic background is relatively privileged. For these reasons, I was given unfair advantages. This might seem obvious to say or to hear, but it's different when you live it. I got a chance to live it. I got a chance when I started working with our sisters and brothers who are or were incarcerated to really experience at a profound level just how unfair were the advantages society gave me as a privileged white male. To get back to your question, all these things that society gave me, all these things ended up not really meaning that much. Now, I threw them all away to addiction. The point is for your audience, when we have dreams that we go after, when we have a higher purpose, whatever our higher purpose is, if we don't stay strong to that, if we don't pursue our dreams, we're at great risk of the, those things of a material nature not satisfying us at a deep enough level so that we're not at risk of, of throwing all that away. Of all the many blessings I was given, a love of reading instilled in me from a very early age was probably my greatest blessing from childhood. To picture my house without books, <laughs> it's like picturing it without shingles or a roof or floorboards. Books were such an integral part of my life. You know, my greatest blessing all Overall, the spirituality, but I, I learned that later on in life. When I was uh, smoking a cigarette in the room of a homeless shelter after I'd paid a quarter for a Marlboro and realized that I just spent one third of my entire net worth, when I only had five items of clothing to my name, and I would wear those five items of clothing every day for months, all I really had left were things like my education, my love of reading, the knowledge that my various teachers had imparted upon me. Yet that was enough. That was enough to guide me to a, a place along spiritual pathway, along a path of service to others. And these were the things that rescued me. 
not so much money, not so much health care, not so much means of recovery, although all these things were very important and still are. It was that education, that love of reading, those things of a non-material nature, that when the material things were gone, those things lifted me out of some very troubling circumstances. The most important things were instilling me in me a love of expressing myself, a love of creativity, a love of reading, a love of learning from the stories of others. Was there a defining moment that set you on this path? There are moments that I would pick out, but I'd like you to identify that. What's one moment that jumps out? And, and I don't mean to turn the tables because there's something that jumps out in your mind. I think the moment that jumped out to me is the picture of you having that first drink at your aunt's wedding. It's that introduction, that feeling of being relaxed and able to fit in and people are paying attention to you because maybe you're funnier or more animated than you normally are. And that moment of realizing you can fit in or become this other person as a result of the alcohol seemed to be the moment where you made that connection in your mind between the alcohol and acceptance. Yes, well, you put it very eloquently. That connection between feelings of intoxication and feelings of social acceptance was a connection and an association that was very, very strong, almost impossibly strong. At 14 years old, I was a child who felt very alienated. I was a boy who was given signals that he didn't belong. He didn't fit in. I didn't fit in. I, I didn't belong. I could not relate to the kids around me. This was the information I let in and that I internalized. Life is usually not about our circumstances. Life is about the meaning we ascribe to our circumstances. As a kid, when I felt ostracized, when I felt bullied, when I was too uncoordinated to compete in gym class or on the athletic field, when I had these strange skin conditions and was ashamed to even wear shorts, in gym class, because, because I, I had this like an eczema on my legs when I was a kid, when the school bus driver would pull over on the side of the road and stop the bus and prevent us from getting home because the kids were too rowdy, I used to cry. All the other kids were laughing and they were having fun. I, I would cry. I was just a very sensitive kid. I would cry in class. I, I would cry a lot. These things I internalized because of my relationships with the other kids. I internalized them as making me an outcast, making me not have something to offer the world, making me feel like I should be ashamed of myself. This is how I perceive the signals. When I got intoxicated that first time at 14 years old, at the same time, I was meeting new people. I was in a completely different city. I, I was in, I grew up in a small town. When I first got drunk, I was in the city of Brooklyn, New York. I was meeting relatives who I'd never met before. I was hanging out with my cousin who was my age and he was a very worldly person to, to my eyes. The point is I made these very strong associations, like you mentioned, between getting intoxicated and feeling like I belonged. But those associations got reinforced as I grew up through my teenage years, they proved very, very hard to break. In later years as an adult, when my drug addiction took me to horrific places, when my drug addiction took me to suicidal depression, fantasies about putting my 357 in my mouth and yanking the trigger, when my drug addiction took me to places like that, I was very unhappy, yet I was very comfortable. Comfort does not equal happiness. And I was comfortable because of those very strong associations. Somewhere in my subconscious, 
somewhere in my soul almost, I felt that being intoxicated was keeping me safe. Even though I was feeling threatened from these disembodied voices and from the conspiracies I thought were after me, the association I made at an early age between being intoxicated and feeling accepted were very, very strong to break. What could the adults around you have done differently? When you're still a minor, that underage drinking, was that a moment that could have helped avoid what happened to you? Well, what I can say from my life is that what would have helped were adults admitting their weaknesses and shortcomings so that I knew it was okay for me to make mistakes, adults not rescuing me, adults allowing me to fail and to work my way out of my failures rather than bailing me out. So for me to have that opportunity to make my own mistakes, develop resilience, and and have the confidence in myself to blaze my own path, because blazing one's own path, it entails failure. We're we're going to fail, and we're going to be lost at times, and we're we're going to uh, encounter fear and self-doubt. When we have the resilience, when we have the confidence in ourselves to know that, yeah, we're going to fail, yet we're, we're going to come back stronger, we're going to rebound, this has happened before, we can work our way out. These are very powerful means of carrying us along paths that otherwise we might shy away from due to fear, due to lack of confidence. These kinds of things were probably looking back what would have helped me in in youth. I, I just wanted to share with you that your writing is wonderful. It really pulls us into your world. It must have been so challenging to relive those moments through writing the book. It it was challenging to write about the obstacles I faced and the hardships that I brought upon myself and projected or visited upon others. The process of writing about them allowed me to really think through how I can look at things in different ways. Many of us who express ourselves creatively find ourselves drawing from our own lives. We put ourselves out there on the page or on the canvas or on the website. We often need to resolve things about our life. So in my case, for example, there were people very close to me whom I deeply resented, deeply, deeply resented. These were close members of my family because uh, I believed they were pressuring me to go off on a career path and return to my biotech field and earn my six-figure equivalent salary. There were people who were discounting my work as a volunteer. What it forced me to do was think of the other side of the person. It forced me to think about how much was I interpreting what this person was saying and doing. It forced me to re-examine the lenses and the filters that I was using to see this individual and the world around me. This was one way that while reliving my experiences was very painful, very challenging, and brought up a lot of fear. One thing that's true is that something's got to change. Because if nothing changes, then nothing changes. The other thing that's true is if we're unhappy, it's probably not others or the world that's going to change, even if others should change, or the world should change, quote unquote should. You know, we have to change. It's whatever's in our heart, be it resentment, be it negativity, be it anger, whatever's in our heart, it doesn't matter so much how it got there. It may not be our fault that our hearts get filled with resentment, anger, and negativity. It may not be our fault, 
but it is certainly our responsibility, or at least for your audience's consideration, consider it's our responsibility to change what's in our heart. Expressing ourselves creatively, the fear it brings up, the grappling with the inner critic, the thoughts of what are people going to think? How am I going to be perceived? When we go through that creative process, we're like that butterfly emerging from a cocoon. The butterfly, if you've ever seen a butterfly coming out of a cocoon, that thing is struggling, man. The butterfly is struggling and struggling and fighting and fighting to free itself from that cocoon. And you just want to help the butterfly. What we realize is it's that struggle to free itself from the cocoon that gives the butterflies beautiful wings with their blazing colors the strength to fly. For a person engaged in a creative process, if you're anything like me, you're going to grapple with insecurities. You're going to grapple with self-doubt. You're going to grapple with criticism. A lot of it may be justified. A lot of it may be true. Yet your struggle through the creative process is making you into that butterfly with its beautiful wings. That is one of the values I got from reliving the experiences. And in a way, I kind of changed my history. I didn't change it by not stating the facts because I related the facts uh, as best I could possibly remember them in consideration of protecting people's identities and in consideration of serving my audience. But I told the truth, yet I changed how I perceived my history in order to make me a better person and hopefully make the world around me a little bit better too. I'm sure that process was extremely difficult and a long road in and of itself. One thing I learned is that healing is not so much a process as it is a skill. I learned this at a somewhat profound level when I became a Krav Maga instructor. Krav Maga, for those who might not know, it's an intense, high contact, very physical means of training for self-defense. It's what the Israeli military uses, and they applied Krav Maga to uh, a civilian platform, which is what I learned. The, the point is, I would get hurt. I would get hurt a lot. I was a relatively old guy when I got into Krav Maga. I would train for two or three hours a day, five or six days a week. I remember I would get poked in the eye, and I, I couldn't see out of my eye for a week. I would, uh, I, I got my ribs, you know, for months and months. I had rid my knee. I never missed a single workout because of an injury, not once in years and years of training with people who were very skilled and very accomplished. I never missed a workout because I learned how to work through injuries. I was forced to learn how to compensate and how to develop the skill of healing. You know, so I could go and train and avoid using the injured body part. I could train in other ways. I learned to compensate. I learned to be resilient. We, I believe, can do the same thing when it comes to psychological trauma. We, we can still be psychologically traumatized, yet we can use adversity to our advantage. We can not only triumph over adversity, but we can use adversity as our ally. The healing that we undertake, the improvements we make in ourselves and to the world around us are that much greater when we do them because of adversity. Martin Luther King says, people are not tested in times of comfort and confidence. It's through times of uh, chaos. And that adversity brings out our character. There's no better time than now. We, we have political polarization, pandemic, poor perceptions of policing here in the States and elsewhere. We don't have to look very far to find adversity. Despite that, I learned we can really turn adversity to our advantage. When you think about it, it's funny. We often pay people 
and we spend our time to have them visit adversity upon us. You think of your trainer at the gym or your yoga instructor, whatever. So we, we pay people to visit physical adversity upon us, yet we curse the universe when the universe gives us adversity for free. I've learned that from very troubling circumstances and, and from the depths of psychosis and mental health challenges and suicidal depression and addiction from adversities of those natures, we can triumph and reach heights that otherwise we, we never would have. These things are often blessings. Uh, adversity often pushes us along pathways we otherwise would have never undertaken. Had I not been addicted to methamphetamine, I never would have pursued a spiritual path, which is now the most important thing in my life. Had I not been a, a person addicted to meth, I probably never would have pursued my dream of writing a book. I, I'd probably you know, be making a good living and, and maybe have a nice family. Those things are beautiful. Those things are wonderful. Yet it was the adversity in my life and the ways I forced myself to overcome that adversity the ways I look to others through their generous storytelling, their generous support inspired me. The adversity in my life really made my life into the beautiful existence it is today. Again, you don't have to look very far to find adversity, and you also don't have to look very far to find stories of people who used their adversity to bring their lives and the lives of others to new heights. It's a great message. Well, I'm pleased that those many times when you considered taking your life that you didn't because it would have robbed me of the opportunity to actually meet you and have this conversation. So I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your experiences. Congratulations on 13 years sober. I'm truly humbled to, to speak to you and really grateful for your time. Thank you so much. I'm grateful to, to have been part of your show. It's awesome. Thank you. Ed's memoir is called My Addiction and Recovery. Just because you're done with drugs doesn't mean drugs are done with you. It's available on his website, edcressy.com, E-D-K-R-E-S-S-Y.com, or it's available on Amazon. There's also a link in the show notes. 10% of the author's profits go to Defy Ventures, the organization who helped him and where Ed now volunteers. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, and if you feel someone else might benefit from listening to this podcast, please share it. Leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to sharing my next guest quest to bridge the racial divide in the U.S. We'll be speaking the day after the 2020 U.S. election. Until next time, I'm your host, Linda McLaughlin in The Arena.